The title of this uh, session is uh, Best Practices at the Intersection of Technology and Education. Did a Google search for that. We got almost a million hits that everything's been said. Um, so uh, another thing uh, that I decided to do that's going to be a little different is that rather than partly because of all the planning for the conference, I had to get, get a chance to do a lot of picking of slides that I wanted to, or images that I want to have behind me as, uh, as I talk. I just figured I'd let Google choose for me. So let me start with the, the, uh, uh, the, the center. Uh, and one of the things that I like to do when we think about the future of technology, kind of just take a step back. Um, gives me a, a really a, a chance to have a more solid run up before we take all those wonderful articulation. And in this way, um, you know, we can get a better sense of where we might head. Um, when Frank Moretti and I started the center in, in late 1998, um, there was a land rush at the university. Uh, it was a time when there were a lot of media initiatives, and some of these were brought out already in the, at the center. And uh, these initiatives included places like Fathom, Included places like the Center for New Media uh, Journalism School, led by John Pablis here on the, on the bottom. Google does a fairly good job of picking the things that I wanted. Um, Morningside Ventures, uh, it included a group uh, that became Digital Knowledge Ventures, um, a center that was part of the arts. Now, uh, what the, the reason for that is uh, that I bring all these things up is in 1998, there was a lot of competition for our, the faculty interest. We're talking about here. What I'm trying to talk about is the work that we do at the center works directly with the faculty in trying to get things done technologically in a purposeful way. And that competition was was very strong then. Even our own bookstore, uh, Barnes and Noble, in 1998, was sending emails to all of our faculty saying that, and I quote, "They can create a website that delivers course content and facilitates communication between you and your students." Barnes and Noble um, is a uh, was promising a simple interface and five minutes to get the job done. Um, we had an outfit called streetmat.com that developed a, a site called Course Notes. Um, and they actually used Provost Alan Brinkley's course as a sample site. Now, this would be three years before we actually launched our own uh, CourseWorks uh, course management system at Columbia. Uh, I think that's very interesting. Even more interesting is that, and Eric, uh, brought that up, uh, that by the time that got launched, most of those centers that I mentioned no longer lived, uh, were no longer at the university. Um, the, um, the, in, in late 1998, another piece of news was that we had a dial-up modem pool. Most people may not remember that, but that was a critical piece of infrastructure for the university, heavily utilized. The university IT department released a <coughs> statement that fall in 1998 that by the end of September, we would have 5656K modems. By in, also in 1998, we were using uh, blue and white G3s from a company that was about to disintegrate at that time. Uh, everybody was thinking that Apple was no longer going to uh, exist. Uh, we were using machines that were clock speeds of about 256 megahertz, and 256 megabytes was considered ample. Some of us used laptops even then instead of using uh, a desktop unit, 
but if we wanted to connect one of these things to one of these projectors, we would have to pay over $7,000 or so. And if we wanted a portable projector, we had to carry a big bag. A, a big issue in the 1998 in terms of privacy was the finger debate. Um, now, some of you may not know what finger is on the Unix uh, environment, but it was a, a system not very dissimilar from the way on IM you can keep track of your buddies. Uh, at that time, the, the issue was that finger might be used as a way to stalk somebody. And so that was a big debate. Uh, the, the outcome was that uh, you had to end up, you had to opt in into the system. And so TAs, teaching assistants, had to identify themselves uh, and, and opt in so their charges uh, could, be, uh, could find them in the student labs. Around the same time, in 1998, um, the DMCA was signed, October 28, 1998. Similarly, notes from uh, a university senate meeting that I, that I attended uh, around that, that I, I wrote in my notes here in November, uh, I had a, a chance to speak to some of the folks from the Senate meeting, and I explained to them what spam was. Um, and it was becoming a problem. And that was the understatement, understatement of the year. In late 1998, we also received the Real Media G2 server, uh, which was making streaming video reality. It was hard to it's hard to recreate that excitement that we felt at that time. Uh, we had been able to stream the audio fairly well. Uh, in fact, uh, I had worked out a deal with the WBAR uh, Barnard College radio station uh, to stream their audio feed and complement their very puny uh, FM transmitter they had. Uh, all of these uh, audio feeds were working okay, but video was a new, new, new place for us. Now, with the G2 server, we could send uh, video streams that were viewable by those 56K modems, uh, and they were posted stamp size, but they were fabulous for us at that time. Um, it wasn't really until 2000 that we utilized that system uh, in a large scale, and that's when we ended up uh, doing the commencement exercises in, in uh, that year. This is pictures from that same, uh, same uh, day. Well, what have we learned about technology and education in those eight years? And we've gone through a lot, a lot of the staff that here uh, we worked on a lot of different projects uh, and issues with faculty, but we've learned uh, a few things. And let me highlight three of them that I think are very important. That is that the first one is that we have to ask a lot of questions and listen to the faculty's interested outcomes. Uh, what is it that they're trying to get students to learn? And, and we really try to hammer that home with our staff as much as we can. Um, another thing that we learned is that we need a lot of time for brainstorming and allowing discussions to bloom. There seems to be, or there is always a tendency, especially when dealing with technology, to jump very quickly at familiar solutions. And so we have to always leave room for extended discussion. Um, and just from the few things that I mentioned there, um, in, in recalling the, um, the, the 1998 is that we also have to understand that today's technology will soon wilt under the constant change that, uh, that we see today. Um, for example, we certainly would not have had this kind of conference in 1998. No way. Um, what kind of conference will we have in 2015? I would like to make two other points about the intersection 
of uh, technology and education. Um, first, at that intersection of technology and education, I think we find now an open market, uh, an open street market. Many products on the banners of web services, Web 2.0, Got some good ones here. The one on the on the bottom here says uh, Web 2.0 isn't a thing; it's a state of mind. Um, we have all these things at our disposal. We have Google, YouTube, Flickr, Delicious, Wikispaces, TypePad. But what's interesting is so many of these services fit a constructivist agenda, and that makes our mouths water. Um, you take a look at the at the offerings just in the area of web editing. Um, and here's an article from TechCrunch, which some of you may be familiar with. And here's a summary of uh, some of the things that now are available for you to edit video online. Cuts, high spot, jump cut, even have a little graphic here uh, to tell you which ones uh, do what kind of services. Um, and again, this has been an area that's typically been reserved for people who use Final Cut Pro or iMovie. Um, next to those same open market stands are the open source folks, and you know there are quite a quite a number of interesting tools there as well. Um, just bring up uh, some of those. Uh, could hit a penguin somewhere along the way there, but we have WordPress, Drupal, Moodle, cornucopia of options. But I have I have to say that we have to ca be cautious about that marketplace because near all these uh, uh, stands is the university's IT stand. And they seem to be lacking in some of these alternatives. And for us who work inside the university and are not part of the university's IT uh, mission, this is very important. Um, and I think for those IT departments who have led the way so often at universities, um, it, it is going to be a, a difficult matter. Uh, you look at the steps that schools like Arizona State have, have taken. They move their email, calendar, and iChat all over to, uh, to Google. Um, so as the options to the university become more and more plentiful and more attractive, and more students and faculty move off campus for their technology support, will the universities become protectionist? They have FERPA rules. They have all these, we have all these things that we have to deal with. Or will IT departments decide a better path and become integrators? adopting initiatives like OpenID, and, folks, and, and opening up their, their own data uh, sources to, uh, and exposing them for our own internal mashups. We don't know. But I think what we do know is that the pace and scale outside the universities is no match for what the internal <laughs> IT departments can do now. Second point. Um, at, the, at that same intersection of technology and, and education, we also find the students. Um, when I ran into a quote from Thomas Friedman's book, The World is Flat, he says the following. Students also have to fundamentally reorient what they are learning and educators how they are teaching it. I felt like he was talking to us at, at the center, uh, those of us who are monitoring this intersection. Um, back to Friedman. Um, he. He calls this for students to be great collaborators, to be great synthesizers, among many other things to compete in this new flat world. Uh, this is exactly our work. But I think we make one assumption that is false. Um, we, the assumption we make is that these students are literally uh, uh, technology literate enough 
use their computers for education. Um, now, this is an opinion, uh, one that uh, is based on a number of observations. A colleague of ours, uh, John Zimmerman, is actually embarking on a small research project to test this hypothesis. But I typically find that our students don't know enough about how to use their computers as a tool for education, or the kind of work that I've, I've been describing. Um, I think it's no big secret that a lot of our own colleagues don't either. Um, but I think we as educators in the technology field need to make a concerted effort to help people learn how to leverage their computer use in this, in this arena. After all, the, the tool is just a way to get more and more leverage uh, for our work. Um, to close out and, and, and really with an anecdote, um, I recently met with the coordinator of a postdoc program here at Columbia, and she's designing a number of online programs for these students and was concerned about the students' overwhelming mastery of technology compared to her. Um, she seemed surprised when I, I explained to her that this uh, the techno student myth, uh, and when I asked her to really think about how much her students use their computer to collaborate, to annotate, synthesize, uh, and collate information, I think it gave her some pause. But I, I think she will only be convinced when she begins working with some of these students. And I hope that many of you will also uh, take that challenge and see how we can be better educators on the use of technology. Um, I'd like to stop here and move over to uh, our next speaker, which is uh, Ken, and we'll have the guys come up and, and switch over. Thank you. Well, we know uh, um, all of the devices in front of you, and these are multimedia devices. So and, uh, as I was uh, running into the room, I, I guess everybody heard the noise from my computer because if you uh, forgot to switch it off, there's uh, plenty of uh, multimedia programs will be switched on, so uh, all these noises. So my apologies for that. But uh, I want to thank the center and uh, Frank and Maurice and, and Peter to, uh, to organize this uh, uh, great conference. Uh, it's... Uh, it's uh, uh, it just a couple of weeks after NAV when, um, for many years, this is the National Association of Broadcasters, and over 100,000 uh, media professionals for annual gathering in, in Las Vegas uh, in April. That uh, I just uh, I, watching the last uh, 10 uh, NAVs. When I uh, go to NAV so to, to start to talk about uh, uh, metadata and uh, uh, archiving and asset management of uh, 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 heavy media, time-based media. That we, we used to have obscure panels where three people would attend. And this year, uh, a asset managed company, Vfinity, uh, as uh, a company I founded, uh, actually had a keynote. So, uh, so the changes uh, in that space, and I would see in the educational and public broadcasting space, has been uh, has been great. And uh, so, by well, first of all, I learned we should do a self-introduction. My name is Shen Tong, and uh, I should represent a company called. Uh, and the I was uh, I first uh, came to this country uh, as an exiled uh, uh, student from uh, from China right after Tiananmen. Uh, it's great to follow uh, Maurice at because that's a very good uh, uh, history uh, uh, summary. That when I first uh, came out of China, carrying on the uh, cause of uh, broke democracy and human rights uh, movement. Uh, First thing we did was the, uh, the uh, uh, sending fax machine back. You know, that was the, you know, this was the ISIS, back 
technology before and during the Iranian revolution, and certainly for the Central European and Eastern European countries, to send fax machines so they can communicate. Only a few years later, with funding from a number of private foundations and the National Endowment for Democracy, my foundation, which I founded after I was exiled at the Democracy China Fund, was sending a, a, a internet modem. But uh, uh, the speed of the web and uh, what web enables, especially in the last few years, in terms of uh, uh, the web acting as a social network, social network has uh, uh, has uh, uh, bypassed any of this, uh, what I would call traditional concerted efforts. But uh, today, even within the uh, firewalls of the Great China um, intranet, people get so much free information, much more than they could ever do by sending in uh, modems and, 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 uh, and bringing a, a free mind uh, uh, journalism intellectuals out of China to get free information and chances of uh, free uh, exchanges uh, of uh, opinions and, and, and discussions. <coughs> so uh, that's, that's, that's no news to people in this room. What I want to talk about, uh, let's get to the topics of this uh, session, which is the, uh, the best practice for uh, cultural education content as a means of access here. The, the central uh, point I want to make is that really the, 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 uh, uh, the greatest power now is the web as a widespread cultural and social, uh, cultural phenomenon and social force. Uh, and uh, so, uh, I'll talk about the web first. I mean, you, you. Uh, this is uh, again thanks to uh, uh, Frank's uh, audio on. Wikipedia. We all know that uh, uh, this is the, the world uh, that's at the center of uh, uh, kids and young adults. It's, it's, it's the center of uh, their entertainment, their information, their uh, cultural resources, and uh, their education. So uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, and Frank and uh, Marisa pointed out a lot of examples of today's kids being able to use the educational tools much more than a lot of in fact, the library archives are competing with Google. I mean, this is common in, in our society in 2008 to uh, educational and cultural institutions and look at uh, uh, film studios, music labels. They're competing with web archives. So, so here you, you see some, a couple of strange characters. Uh, I know today everybody knows Chinese, but I'll still translate. Uh, that's uh, called Weiji, which is a Chinese word of Christ. It's actually made up by two characters. Also, uh, uh, one is uh, danger, the other is so that the creative uh, uh, translation of Chinese as well. But uh, let's stay with the good story uh, that uh, that's what it meant. But the web presented uh, uh, opportunities to get access to talent. So the opportunity here, what I'm going to talk about, is that uh, what made Yahoo and Google and Amazon and eBay those successful web offerings, mm -hmm. and a lot of Wikipedia, for example, non-commercial actors, successful, is, is equally available to everyone. That means it's equally available to and uh, and uh, being sort of playing the catch-up game, if you look at the the, the uh, 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 website of Frank, uh, 
actually there are certain newcomers advantage. So instead of being on the defensive side, everybody can and should harness the power of this web. And when I talk about the web here, it's not so much the, 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 the end use and the web as a cultural phenomenon, but it's a, rather the set of technologies, evolving technologies and social forces that enable the web to be the way it is. A couple of point, uh, panelists pointed out it's really uh, uh, hard to, to talk about best practice when we're still trying to understand what the web is and what it's, what it's really doing. But here are some, <coughs> some initial attempts of Sigma and Eckhart to, um, to be targeted for criticism and, and discussion. And uh, uh, as, as you can see on the screen here, uh, this is a set of things that among VPNs installs and uh, uh, partnerships uh, with universities here in Asia and other parts of the world and with commercial entities, TV stations, including WNET and, and, and PBS World, uh, the, the kind of experiences we, we may want to uh, learn a lesson to, uh, from. That uh, some of these are very high bar, but I'll list them very quickly. Intuitive user uh, experience. I'll just cut to a, um, a pilot demo here uh, as, as a way of introducing uh, this concept and uh, VPN. The, uh, basically, you know today if uh, any young kids, in fact, anybody, uh, if you give them a bar like this, they know what to do. There's no training. It's intuitive. If it's next to Google and Yahoo, and you say, well, let, let me find uh, anything with Warner. Let me find anything with uh, uh, American Archive. Well, then maybe I, I, uh, help me to know. Let's find American Archive things. We're, we're helping through WNET with the American Archive project. Then you can find uh, all the contents with American Archive. Uh, and uh, if time allows, we'll, we'll share some of those. And, and uh, so, intuitive user interface, being able to find video, being able to find all the uh, <coughs> documents, uh, being able to find all the uh, photos and images, just like that. Being able to have all types of content uh, universally uh, available and managed in a unified way. That may be a good practice to follow. And, um, and uh, there's also uh, the uh, uh, using the web not only as a uh, way to easily and intuitively access information, uh, such as Google search, which is uh, information in the form of metadata and reference to content, but also the content itself. And furthermore, it's also the web, uh, this emerging as what some may call Web 2.0 or even Web 3.0, in terms of web as a way to access tools, content tools, such as online editing, we talked about, uh, uh, and, and semantic linking. So that we, we, we talk to the web not only in terms of keywords and in terms of sentences, but also meaning and community and connection between people. So that's an emerging space of semantic linking. So uh, just uh, some, some quick examples to say, well, you know, in addition to finding all this information of various forms and having the digital masters, digital versions, all of that uh, uh, to be accessible, let's find all the project by uh, some popular editing tools, say Photoshop. Why shouldn't that be an asset? easily accessible, and then furthermore, easily launched into your local environment so that you have the seamless experience between the web world, the, the cloud, and your local environment uh, you're very familiar with. So you, you don't have a particular attachment to a particular tool, such as Final Cut Pro or Photoshop, let's say, well, Final, uh, Final Cut Pro project for the American Archive project. Here we go, this is some contents of the project, and the video that's automatically aligned for those kind of editing project that is compatible. You know, so so the, the idea here is self-service. 
that providing a seamless <coughs> experience that is connected to the intuitive user experience, a seamless experience for, for self-service of continuum from finding the information, retrieving them, being able to find various versions and taking care of the copyright aspect that we can know this we can use for a montage, that one we couldn't because of rights issues, and then have them seamlessly loaded into the local environment and back. So this is the, uh, the, the uh, in, in the computing um, science space where it's the, the, really the browser-driven uh, <coughs> desktop integration. So, so, so that's another aspect. I mean, this is certainly a high bar, but uh, that's the direction to, to try. I, I just wanted to show uh, a, a example of that, maybe uh, to illustrate the point. I'll show Anatop Pro uh, example of that. Uh, let's see uh, here. Take a quick quick look at uh, how this works. So let's say if you if you uh, uh, log in and and search for uh, Final Cut Pro project, this is something uh, we're actually in the process of working with the Sega Center and uh, Columbia University to put uh, in the Columbia um, uh, Oral Archive and other archival environment and media environment. Which is that once you find the the uh, 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 you, you do a search and then you find Final Cut Pro project. The reason that we, we use uh, my own uh, Video clips, which uh, in addition to shameless self promotion, is that uh, I assume I have rights to use uh, the interview I did, at least my portion of it. Okay, then. So, in any case, as you can see, the uh, there's a uh, there's one button. There's no uh, it's uh, it's upward pointing uh, arrow. If you didn't read the manual, most of kids don't like to read manuals anymore. Uh, you press that. What happens if you happen to have Final Cut Pro in your environment? The production project will walk out of the cloud and into your local environment. That's a seamless self-service experience. So now you can see there's a timeline right here. So uh, so now you can be in the, the comfort of your local Final Cut Pro editing environment. So what's next? I mean, you, you know anybody who uses Final Cut Pro or Motion or whatever the local creative tools, you know that's uh, that's something. Uh, uh, it's a very local experience. But the browser, an intelligent browser, will, will make this at a web scale in terms of shareable, collaborative process. So because the search engine is right there, let's say if we want to make that, uh, uh, continue to produce that project, you can find uh, all the photos and images and audios and videos that you may use. For example, this is actually with the Asian University, National Taiwan University. It's a award ceremony uh, for VFinity in uh, NTU. So let's say we use that for the VFinity marketing montage. So you see here, you can seamlessly one-click launch, that's the name of this function we call, uh, of that content, again, into your local production environment. So your, 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 your one-click launch to your, your production project, which is shared uh, at the web scale, and you're one-click launching your content into that environment. So what happens uh, next? What, what happens uh, with a uh, avid user of this editor? They, they finish editing. They, they do it on timeline. They combine two videos, as you can see. As soon as they finish, they save and render and produce a new digital master, as they, they call it. Uh, so they don't do anything. <coughs> See, the, the key thing here is they don't, they don't really learn anything new. They're using the tools they're familiar with that using Google-like search. But the end result is a web-scale, seamless self-service for a next level of, of the web and social network behavior. Which is that, you know, now you, you see the project is saved. If you log in somewhere else, or the same place a couple of days later you launch, you know what happens. You pick up exactly where the last editor left off. So this is seamlessly integrated into your desktop environment. And this works with all Microsoft and the Infinity uh, engine, with all Microsoft Office, with all Adobe Creative Suite, with all Apple Creative Suite, and so on. 
also the Sony software. So just that's just one example of um, this kind of seamless self-service uh, that's going beyond the, 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 the web world into the local computer environment. Next, a huge subject about taxonomy versus folksonomy, the ability of having a very flexible uh, system that can easily say, uh, uh, accommodate any uh, organization or public standard-based uh, metadata standard, as well as Wikipedia or YouTube or MySpace tagging. The idea also is, of course, self-service intuitive. You know, at, at any, uh, any um, um, metadata field on the fly, being able to take Free tagging in as well as universal archive, university archive is the expert tagging in, and uh, adding any number of uh, fields and being able to repeat any number of fields. So, so there's that's a quite an involved discussion. But the idea is this: being able to have a single unified uh, environment uh, and a metadata schema that accommodate both controlled vocabulary, which certainly has a space, even uh, has a place in our world and in the future emerging convergence world in media. Uh, even though it's been on the defensive side, and certainly accommodate the great power of the free hacking that we've seen in Wikipedia and MySpace. And the uh, uh, next couple of things I'll run through very quickly is that um, you want flexible and open architecture. That's a very high bar. I already talked about that, but how do we do that? I think I'll speak my next time to say SOA, service oriented architecture, and uh, web services uh, probably comes closest in terms of being future proof and proven and scalable. We want to try to do that uh, wherever possible, open source software uh, as well. And uh, dynamic workflow, we don't have time to cover some of some other aspects. So the, the uh, well, I, uh, I prepared half dozen of use cases, including the American Archive, that we're, we're helping uh, in, uh, in uh, through WMP to do. And um, that's actually a Ken Devine, Kevin Ken Devine, the, the CTO of WMP screen, and uh, just show one instance of uh, how you can uh, have, for example, PB Core, that's the uh, PBS and the Library of Congress uh, uh, jointly made uh, standard of uh, um, a method standard, say, enforcing PB Core throughout 374 public stations in this country, as well as uh, uh, their upstream downstream environment. And, and the broadcasters were the production company that producing a lot of content for PBS. So, so that's the taxonomy aspect. Universally, easily. There are a lot of other aspects. Make it multi unit and make that also as, as self service. So, anyone who's a language preference, the interface is changing. I want to search in Chinese, you're searching Chinese. I want to search Welsh. You know, I never like hand waving, so I want to show you that I want to search and referring to. And for example, um, so a, a simple example would be. Change a language uh, uh, preference, say I change to in Chinese. So your interface changes, and you can search. Uh, you need to be double by so you can search in languages. You can actually search in mixed language. So all of those things uh, provide seamless and intuitive user experiences, but have very very high requirements for the backend. So I think I will stop here instead of going into some use cases and what went wrong, what worked in a variety of industries that we have uh, uh, tried uh, in the past few years this generation of web technology that we build into an engine, they, but instead of uh, putting it as a destination site like a Google or YouTube would do, they license it to our partners and, and, uh, and uh, customers to help them uh, to harness the power of the web from within. So um, 
That's my 10 minutes. Thank you. Sure. Um, I'm here to talk about a project that I've been involved with for the last, um, there we go, two years already, um, which is uh, Metavid. So that the image that's ghosted behind the, the word Metavid there is, is taken by uh, a government employee every almost every day, almost every weekday anyway. Um, Congress meets in Washington and um, we have these remote controlled cameras that uh, government employees operate on our behalf. Um, and this is open content. And uh, this is kind of the story of that content. Um, so what is Metavid? It's an open access archive of video and associated metadata from US House and Senate floor proceedings. Uh, it's entirely open source and patent free from the ground up. And it's open content, so it's public domain mostly. Uh, and we'll get into that. Um, so it came out of the, the Santa Cruz Digital Arts and New Media Program where both I and my collaborator, Michael Dale, um, were MFA students. Um, and uh, it, it actually started with some research that uh, we were both doing some research on archive. I was looking at um, how public domain content can sometimes fall into this hole of enclosure where you know, even though we're supposed to have access to it, we can't always actually even get at it to, to use it, to reuse it. And um, so I thought I'd be able to put that down and make some art. And what I wanted to do, it was 2004. It was the time of the elections. I wanted to get some video footage of debates presidential debates and some uh, congressional debates, cut out everything but the pronoun, right? Pronouns are these kind of interesting semiotic devices. When a politician uses them, it's even more interesting because they come to represent us, right? When they say I, we, I thought I could just cut them all down to that and it would be kind of cute little touches. Uh, and then I started looking for footage. And what I ended up with, I don't know, it's small, but I ended up with the shopping cart from cspan.org, which is really like, the path of least resistance to congressional footage, right? And so I ended up with two coffee mugs for like six bucks a pop um, and some footage, and it came out to $1,700, minus five bucks. Um, and so in kind of like looking at best practices, this is maybe what inspired <laughs> some bad practices. And um, so... At first, I was kind of surprised, and and I went in and I looked. Um, there was some talk of like what um, policies, educational use policies, might look like. And here's C-SPAN, and so they have a policy that educators can use any C-SPAN programming, and they have a lot of their own proprietary programming that they do, like Book TV, Washington Journal, and they exempt um, the public domain material that they carry that in this license. So it's clear, okay, well, it is public domain. Um, but it's thirty to sixty dollars an hour. So when we started looking at this process, um, here's how things were. So um, they were taking the government feeds that go to the press gallery. Uh, they were rebroadcasting them. They'd put them on the web for two weeks in 160 by 120 pixels, that postage stamp that somebody was talking about earlier, in real video. Um, after that point, it was thirty to sixty dollars per hour from their archive, and they would make you sign licensing agreements. Um, hearings, 
not public domain. Copyright C-SPAN, Lido Hearing, enters public domain in 2,101. Is there published uh, on web for a very period, same size, lots of money. Um, wait, what's that license about? Okay, well, you need a license to do public performances, documentaries, films, television. This is in addition to the $1,700. That, so this is like way beyond what an art student could ever dream to afford. Um, and then here's all the things that they just absolutely don't permit. Duplication, posting on the internet, airing on public access, fundraising use. So we have some enclosure take, uh, taking place at a few different levels. Um, real video. How many of you have ever tried to download a real video file and use it for something? How did that go? Yeah, okay. I don't, <laughs> what? Right, but it, I mean, it was pretty much designed to make that really difficult. Um, so they have a physical archive. It used to be tied to Purdue University. It's not anymore, actually, uh, and access is pretty limited. And then they have these license agreements that further limit what you can do with this footage of what the people who represent us do. Um, and so uh, Mike and I started talking about, well, how can we reimagine this? What, you know, how can we contest this? And what's possible with current and emerging technology? And so kind of looking at the, the architecture of what they had done as a recipe of Maybe we should try doing the opposite. Um, well, it's open content. It should be easy to save. It should be easy to reuse and repurpose. Um, if somebody wants, you know, if somebody looking at a clip of their representative, they should be able to keep it on their hard drive forever. You know, their employee. Open technology. Uh, we should, there's so much to learn from the open source community in terms of interoperability and being able to share with each other. Um, so we started looking at all of these different projects that were out there, um, some of them that were already working together and, and some not, not so much. Um, some of those icons might look familiar. Um, and we started tinkering with them, seeing what would fit together, what wouldn't. Um, I know it's a little small, but here's the $3 um, cable splitter that we got at Radio Shack. Um, so we have the, the cable feed that we split so we can get C-SPAN 1 and 2 for the House and the Senate. Uh, here are the two $50 TV capture cards that bring you uh, MPEG-2. Uh, here's the Linux box that we built. And uh, here's some free software and um, some other sources of metadata and a bunch of hard drives. Um, so um, we started archiving video. Um, but not just video. Uh, along with this cable signal of video, you also get closed caption text, um, which we thought could be interesting and can be fun to learn. Um, and we also had these names that C-SPAN was writing on the screen of who's talking. And so we started thinking, well, wouldn't it be cool if we got some open source OCR software and actually read that off so we know who, who was talking? It was kind of a joke, but like two weeks later, we'd, we'd done it. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'll show the project now. Um, so we've been archiving uh, Senate and House floor proceedings since last January in uh, a video format called Og Theora, which most of you have probably never heard of. 
but it's uh, completely patent free. It was developed by Onto, the people that developed what's now Flash Video, but they actually gave their patent to all of humanity to use for whatever they wanted for this older technology that they developed. So here is just the directory with all of the OGS in it. Some of them are 200 megs, some of them are many gigabytes. Some days go eight hours. Sometimes they show up, you get a Pledge of Allegiance and an opening prayer, and they go home. Um, <laughs> really. Um, and, you know, th that's kind of the thing. Like, if you buy $1,700 worth of tapes from C-SPAN, you get these long, like, sometimes eight hours, eight-hour days. You don't really know when the thing that you really want to look at is. So having this video as, as linear video, as those of you who have tried to watch C-SPAN probably know it, it's really unwatchable. And so that was a problem for this kind of interesting project that we were trying to build. Like, well, okay, now we've got these really long video files that are unwatchable. Great. You know, you, they're bigger than postage stamps. They look okay. But, well, how do we make that usable? So that's where the closed caption data became useful because that's timed text. When you have timed text, you can use it as a search index. So if you search for something like Etch-a-Sketch, and it's actually looking for Etch and Sketch, but here are all of these clips of Byron Dorgan, and he, he's done this like on six different days. So give them a day off for months. You can do that. You can't do that here. And so that, that's why these companies are moving their jobs to China. American Okay, this is our Java player being kind of funky in Mac Firefox. So since not all browsers are alike in their ability to play Java, you can actually take these links and copy them directly into VLC, uh, which will play them really smoothly. Um, in the next version of Firefox and Opera, there will be native Fiora support, um, which is going to make things a lot better for us. Um, and there's also actually a VLC Mozilla add-on that plays it more smoothly. Um, you can also actually download these streams directly to your hard drive. Um, so this is about 35 seconds of him talking about Etch a Sketch. You have this long URL here that shows what day it is. This is from 2006. Uh, one hour, 24 minutes, and 49 seconds in, and uh, 35 seconds beyond that. And you can actually change these and select a limited portion of the video. It will grab just that portion and rewrite the, the keyframes for you. So you don't need to download eight hours to get particular portion that you're interested in. Um, so, okay, that was closed caption text. That was kind of, um, having that layer of metadata kind of enabled some interesting kind of searches. We also had the names that were able to read off the screen. And that made us really curious. When you know who's talking, there's all this data about who they are, right? And so, I'm um, this is kind of an experimental overlay mode, which um, kind of demonstrates the advanced searches. You can search by person, you can search by what they said, and you can actually bound it with date ranges. Um, all of these searches are also available as an RSS feed, so you can subscribe to it in Democracy Player, keep an eye on a particular issue as said by a particular person. Um, but So when you have this information about who's talking, you can also go out and find information about them. And so what this is going to do in a 
minute here is uh, it actually goes out and gets campaign finance data about who's talking uh, in real time based on the OCR name data that we have. And so it'll be Saxby Chambliss. Sorry, the audio doesn't work on this, but Saxby Chambliss, he's talking about the impact of uh, border <laughs> security on agribusiness. I might actually have to let this load and move on. So uh, core components, Augtheora, it's uh, basically a streaming codec, but we're also archiving in it. Um, 300K per second and 900K per second. The high quality streams are a little bit less funky than stuff we've seen on The Daily Show, which is kind of a threshold for us. Um, it will have native support in Firefox and Opera, uh, probably November. Uh, Anodex is uh, open source technology that lets you grab these small portions of a video without having to download the entire thing, which when you're dealing with nine hour video files, um, it's pretty important. Uh, we're working on moving all of our closed caption text into MediaWiki so people can use that to correct the mistakes that tend to occur, to annotate, and uh, to create links. Uh, we've got many hundreds of hours of video. Um, you can play it in the browser, external applications, uh, RSS. It's easy to embed for bloggers, um, like on our blog. We continue our <laughs> on funding for Iraq escalation. I want. Well, he reads this, this great version of uh, Humpty Dumpty. Uh, I won't PBLC that one. So. Um, things we're working on are retaining the MPEG-2. Um, because as of now, MPEG-2 is very large. We transcode to AUG and toss it out because you know, we've only got six hard drives, not 60. Um, uh, we have a bit to go on usability. Um, playing in the browser, um, for instance, Mac Firefox is like the boogeyman for us right now. Um, come November, like I said, native support should be in there. And with so many senators and a couple of Congress people running for president, should give us enough time to really expose that. Well, here I can show you the Saxby Chambers thing. So here's um, data coming from Center for Responsive Politics about the speaker. You can see his, uh, his profile there. You can see sector totals, agribusiness, and finance are right on top. Makes it a, a much more interesting way to watch this footage. They're not always so. Awesome. 